Hey, welcome to Nice Work. This is a great episode we have for you. We have a special guest. He's uh, Ben Hogan. Who's no the, the the guy who just signed a big contract? Seth Rogan. Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan is our guest on this episode of Super Nice Club. Um, no, it's not Joe Rogan. I don't even know who Joe. Lee McCluskey. Lee McCluskey is our guest. Sorry. I just, I talked to a lot of famous people, kind of like on the regular, and I can't remember which one is which all the time. I do remember now, though, that Joe Rogan is the big, blonde, 80s wrestler guy. So I got you. I got you, Joe. Lee, Lee McCluskey is even cooler than Joe Hogan, though. Lee McCluskey is, he's lots of things. He's an incredible artist, actor, author, and also it says here on Wikipedia, philosopher. You've seen him in a lot of stuff. You've seen him on, if you grew up, if you lived in the 80s or even the, the, the 90s because there were still vapors and fumes of the 80s, you know Lee. Uh, he had a leading role uh, in Dallas. He was in Star Trek, all over Star Trek. Jag. Do you guys remember Jag? Oh, that was great. Chicago Hope. Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Probably the coolest thing. Probably the biggest thing that Lee's ever done. Lee's probably still cashing checks from Buck Rogers. I would imagine nine-figure checks. Uh, Santa Barbara, General Hospital, The Young and the Restless, One Life to Live. He was um, Luke Skywalker in the Star Wars trilogy. I think he's in a lot of things. This thing. We're going to talk to Lee about his time acting, but also his time studying the esoteric wisdom and arts, and as an artist, exploring them visually through his incredible works that pretty much are his home, Olandar, down in the Los Angeles area. It's a great talk with a great man, and I hope you get a lot out of it. I sure did. I, I've got a new reading list that's miles long, and I won't even understand two-thirds of it, which is okay because it's gonna help me understand myself a little bit more. So now please, turn off everything else, tune out the rest of the world, and drop in to nice work with Lee McCluskey. Lee, thanks for being on. Nice work. Really glad to have you on today. Delighted to be here. Glad to be here. I wish that you guys could see Lee's studio, even the little bit that I'm seeing, the, the chair that he's in, the, the vibrant, co the colors. Absolutely beautiful. How did you get that chair patterned like that? Did you paint yeah, it? I, I, well, you know what? Because uh, painting is, uh, as they say, when you can no longer talk about it, paint it. So uh, my chair is a painted chair. I've, I've created, as a matter of fact, what you were looking at in my studio uh, all began, not my painting, but the painting of my studio began on 9-11-2001. And I started painting really because of a type of inward collapse, a sense of despair. That that that. And as I fell on my knees, and I think that this is an important part of our story and why it's been so important to me in terms of developing what has become a completely painted 
environment, my upstairs library studio, which is uh, now painted from floor to ceiling. All of the furniture is painted. My paintings hang from the ceiling, but it's created what's called the hieroglyph of the human soul. And if we think of that, what does that mean? It means the picture book. And we've reached a point where I really believe this is saying we've all reached a point where it's not about fighting over what book or what we believe and don't believe. It's what happened and why this happened in my home is that the, the final questions are intimate. And I think that's why this is also expressed as art, as we think of it, painting. But that's our first language. You know, in other words, the first thing we did was paint a cave. And it wasn't to illustrate something. It was to cultivate a relationship with the things that can't be known directly. And I think our despair, our anguish, you know, in a way, our arts are where they're transmuted. You know, our despair becomes the blues, or, or we start to say this, I feel like jazz. It just, it's, it's, it's all, you know, in a sense, it's not mistakes. It's about how do I find a way to flow with whatever, whatever comes. And I, and I think that's why uh, the environment here and why I think it's important because we're not visual, um, that people do take a moment and just Google my name, look at the art, but also the, the hieroglyph or Thoth's library, because that's the in, unintentional um, acronym. So before we jump into all of that, which is fascinating, let's, let's just back up a little bit for everybody, because you were once an actor, quite an actor. Let's just start there. How did you get into acting? Take us a little bit through the, the beginning of your career. I was always, that was always my first love. Uh, my dad was a painter, so I grew up around the arts, but I always thought of myself as an actor because ever since kindergarten, essentially, I was one of those kids that wanted to be in the school plays, wanted to, you know, so by the time ninth grade came along, you know, I was doing all of the drama department uh, things and the plays in school. And, and, and the trajectory took me uh, really when I was uh, in high school, going to college, I got out of high school early, I was going to college for a year and I... And it struck me that I wanted to really know my craft, like I couldn't I bad. But I said, if I'm going to do this professionally, I really want to know what it is to to be a trained actor. So I auditioned for a number of schools and, and ended up uh, uh, going to Juilliard, uh, which is also how, where I met Cario and, and friends, um, that uh, in the acting division, and this is in the early 70s, and um, actually, Kelsey Grammer was my roommate. And I mean, there was all these people that, that really became uh, Robin Williams was in my class. So, so a lot of a lot of people who really uh, became markers in our culture uh, of different things uh, were part of that early core. So I always thought of myself uh, as an actor. My dad is a painter. But he'd always say, say to me, if you can't talk about something, paint it. So I always journaled. I drew. I didn't think of myself as being an artist per se, but much more just using it as a way of connecting because like most young, you know, like teenagers, you, you, you have all of this going on inside of you. You don't know what to do with it. So I picked up a guitar. I started singing and writing songs and, and writing, you know, drawing automatic drawings, just trying to really create some way to express myself. And it wasn't really, um, uh, it was always very private. And as a matter of fact, when I was at Juilliard, the, I think the wedding of the artist in me uh, emerging really more seriously was that I couldn't connect with a character in a play I was doing where I wanted to kill my father in that play. And I, I was all in my head and I had to find it in my body. And 
I saw a calligrapher talking about breath and about about chi, about about energy, and I thought, man, I, I don't want to use art as a way of illustrating something, but really capturing my breath, finding that emotion of the feeling of the character. And it, it make a long story short, the process ended up looking a bit like a Jackson Pollock, but I really connected energetically to the inner nature of the turmoil of the character. You know, I, I've found it not intellectually, but how does this feel? You know, why is he so angry? What is it I can't, you know, and I found that. And, and so it became a great tool when I was working on a character to use my art as a way of, almost like an archaeologist would say, I've got to dig into the, the deeper nature of why I'm motivated the way I am. And, and so I followed the arc of, of acting in, in, the, in that I was very fortunate. When I was at Juilliard, I met an agent in the elevator I was living in the hotel I was living in. And then my first series was Executive Suite. And I, I was, it, we were groundbreaking those days. I had a, I had a uh, Brenda Sykes, an African-American girlfriend. And, you know, so there was a, like this was the early 70s. And then I played Alexander in Dawn, Portrait of Teenage Runaway, about a young hustler and about really sexual confusion and about child prostitution. And, and so they were really in the 70s, when I, mid-70s when I was early on. Mm -hmm. I found the characters were quite interesting. I played a, played a very manipulative, uh, not sympathetic, paraplegic character. And I thought, wow, they're really examining. And then the 80s hit. Reagan years set in. And really, I said, you know, in a way, Dallas came along, which I became a cast member of. But it was, it was very interesting because it was this uh, moving away from dealing with uh, things and really putting a, a veneer of, of wealth or, or of distraction. And what happened for me with the artist side was that that Dallas, which was uh, I played Mitch Cooper, in an odd way, people were saying, "Oh, that's wonderful! It's so successful." But I had that sense of this really doesn't feel. It was like if this is what this is, creatively speaking, I have to find a way to not let it be about this. Do you know, in a sense, because I found too many people get negative. It just seems that in the eighties. You, if, you, if you turn the TV on in the United States, when I look at your, your listings, there's, I think, a 71% chance that you'd probably be on there. Between <laughs> Dallas, Young and the Restless, One Life to Live, Star Trek, even Buck Rogers, all the classics 80 series, Heart to yeah, Heart, yeah. Fall Guy, Fantasy Island, My Camera, yeah. Love Boat, Murder, She Wrote. You have so many credits. These are all the shows that I mainlined as a kid that I'm still yes. detoxing, all right? <laughs> I'm still getting out of my system. I apologize. Um, Jeff Buck Rogers. Love that. Beedy, beedy, beedy. I was going to ask you, you know, one of my prepared questions was if you had any favorite roles, but not only that, ones that you identified with the least so that they were the most challenging. And you've already, you already mentioned that at Juilliard, that you had a role that was super challenging for you because you identified with it so little, right? Right. right. Um, so you covered that. Thank you for your, your psychic <laughs> intervention. Anything that was just your favorite, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean the most that you're most known for like Dallas or these others, but just a role that you loved that you still carry. You know, with you. I, I really have to say, because uh, I was very surprised. I, I expected it to come out of nighttime. I, I, during the writer's strike, I was given an opportunity to do Santa Barbara, which I knew very little bit of, about, but it turned out to have uh, truly a, a, a brilliant actor and dear friend of mine still uh, at the helm, helped me save my home during the fires, A. Martinez. And uh, Marcy Walker was out of, they were Eden and Cruz, and they were very popular. And coming onto that show, 
and there was writing of such a great caliber because because usually it's like opera you're very obvious you're singing these arias of you know angst but but this the writer and i i wish i could honor them by name because what they were able to do was to write again with subtext where you where it was what you were not saying which was so compelling do you know in other words it was the characters were much more uh, able to explore the, the psyche. So I really enjoyed uh, the experience, not so much the character, but that that experience. And then my favorite, I think, character I played in a continuous was, was I played my opposite. I played a character named Damien Smith on General Hospital, and I was the resident evil. Now, I didn't think of myself that way. As a matter of fact, I looked around, and this is the mid-'90s, and I said, who represents to this culture everything that would say your love makes you weak and vulnerable. The only thing that matters is power and power is what you get when you get people uh, and you dominate them. You don't give them a, you know, you seduce them. You, and, and I looked around and I said, Donald Trump, this was 25 years ago. Oh, really? So, okay. So, so this was art of the deal era, Donald yeah, Trump. Yeah, it, it was, you know, the, okay. the making the deal. And, and so, but I find it very interesting because, Again, I think there's much more humor in the universe if we if we look at it more symbolically than than just with anguish, because I worked on then the tarot, which are literally in the tradition the archetypes or the arcana are called trumps. So, so there's this whole story of like because theater says don't get over involved with the the critique of the character. In other words, look at the play. How do these different characters? interact. And so my relationship as that character, I had a lot of, I, I really had a lot of fun because it was like going to work and playing your opposite because I knew this character, Damien, would think everything that Lee valued was absolute nonsense of no particular value. Now you loved acting. You're really good at it. And it provided for you. You once, I read that you once referred to acting as your patron. Yes. And what did you mean by that? What I meant was that that in 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 the Renaissance, uh, you know, there were there were the patronage of of uh, a duke or this because the artists needed to eat, and so you would have a patron, and they were patrons of the arts. And I realized with acting because I didn't want to make it oh I should be doing this or I didn't do that or you know in a sense the land of regrets. I said wait a minute, this has offered me when I was doing Dallas, it allowed me to move to my home in Malibu, you know, and and and. And I thought, wait a minute, this is a patron, meaning that thank you for your services. I loved my job as an actor, and I always loved it when more was demanded of me as an actor. And I think the hardest roles for me was where really nothing was demanded of me. I called it mannequin acting. And and I just, I didn't know what to do with myself. And you ever see a really bad performance of mine, it's, I don't know, you know, in other words, I'm motivated very much from a psychological state as an actor. And if I can't find that or it's not there, it's just script forwarding or plot forwarding. Um, but I found that that just as an actor, I, I thought, well, wait a minute, what what is this doing? Because, you know, when you realize that it's not going to be it's a business and, and that to a great degree, you're navigating a lot of life choices and with a family, a lot of responsibilities and I did not want to make my life about I should have, could have, would have. I thought, wait a minute, this is allowing me to live here. And I said, what do I feel is is that I can do? 
And that's when I began um, my discussion groups, weekly discussion groups. It began um, on Tuesday nights, extended to Thursday nights. And now I've had over 3,900 discussion groups in my home. And I feel that, that, that it was that why it was a patron was that, that the acting allowed and Hollywood allowed, like my wife was director and, and assistant director, and, um, uh, and it allowed us to use our home as a way of saying, if we can't change the world and the world doesn't want to be changed, then maybe we can cultivate a place where people come together and begin to honor the value of their particular part in the story. And that's why I think the metaphor of my home is so important, because home is what I think we're all seeking, a place where we feel safe. And I think it's very hard to talk about certain things if you don't feel safe. So your home is Olandar, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. That's so this is so, so interesting. You were acting, you were in the height of it, and now you're, you've been doing these discussion groups for years. When in your career did you realize that you had this sort of tug for for your your dominant activities? You know, when you were attracted, shall we say, to the uh, the mysteries of the life and the cosmos and the inner workings of the self. When did that start to happen for you? Was it always with you? Did you have a moment? You know, that's an interesting question because I, I can think back to when I was a very little child and and realizing that the way I saw, because I, I tended to see people not as one thing, but all of these qualities. And and then I realized very early on because of an aunt and, and really seeing how hurt she was that I could see. I didn't, because you're little, you don't know, but then you sense the hurt. Oh, I understand the, you know, like the curtains, these are private. And I and I kind of closed the curtains on that. I said I said you're not supposed to see this way. Um, and I then early on, I'd say really in my early teens, uh, even even twelve, thirteen years old, um, you know, I was very much in nature. I loved nature. I loved climbing trees. I loved I was outdoors. And I, um, but I, I could only put it that that my unconscious began to to over and it just dump into me. Um, and, and it's, it, you know, almost the line, I knew I wasn't crazy, but you know, that, that <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and what I really believe, and then I had a, a near death experience with, with an automobile accident as I started having out of body experiences. You know, this is why when people ask me about my art and hallucinogenics, I said, I didn't need to get further out i needed to find my wife i did not need to go uh to more imaginative realms you know uh, and it was because i was so thrust into my unconscious that it it forced me to write it forced me because it, it, again it, when you, there's no way to say something where somebody says how do you feel and then you think uh this is not something i can just say if I, i'll say fine because Otherwise, it would be way too much. And I kind of feel like that's when uh, we start to write things down. We start to journal. We start, you know, for me, that none of my art started as a grand conceit, nor my what turns out to be really a type of mastery of a lot of these ancient arcane wisdom traditions, meaning that they are like a, a master violinist. It's not that you, you got there by not doing the work, but right. there's a type of union where the work on the one side aligns one with, uh, in a sense, having lived up to these inner qualities. So they're able to have residence in you. So a lot of this for me is, is a strange development because the acting was a public face, mm -hmm. which taught me about the public need. 
Like I also was did Max Factor California for Men when I was doing uh, Santa Barbara. So I was the male counterpart to Jacqueline Smith and and Jane Seymour. And wow, and, you know, Good and for I, you. Oh, it was great. I, you know, <laughs> but that's where I started to understand. I wasn't Lee McCloskey. I was the cologne. People wanted, they didn't want me. They wanted a reflection of what, in a way, they they felt about these things. So it was to back off, to not demand. I used to, I realized one point, I used to bring this other Lee into conversations with producers. And they, I think, you know, and then my, my manager at the time said, uh, Lee, Producers want you to look like you and be like them. <laughs> you know, don't you, you're confusing people. They, so, do you mean by do you mean by that the Lee? Because I'm trying to I'm trying to imagine. I, I, I'm a Gemini, so I was able to sort of create uh, my yeah. life in a way. I, I'm trying to imagine well, Lee. Yeah. In let's say 1983, you're killing it in Hollywood. You're yeah. Doing all the 80s shows. You know, you're on Buck Rogers. Um, yes. yes. I just want to say Buck Rogers a lot of times. Um, <laughs> and you're also diving into the es- esoteric mysteries, you know, the yeah. arcane ancient. Right. Did you earn a reputation as an eccentric? Did that affect your career? Were you on set and going, hey, hey, Jane, um, ha- have you ever heard of uh, Manly Hall? You know, I mean, were you kind of like trying to figure you know, out who your crowd I, was? I actually think that that was the genius behind my discussion groups, meaning that you realize because especially and we all know it, I, think of something you're really enthusiastic about. But other people aren't. Well, when you're really enthusiastic about it, you assume other people are. But then you look at their faces and you realize they've glazed over. And it was very helpful. I loved that I was given this opportunity as an actor to realize that it's not that people aren't interested in certain things. It's to what degree. Like I realized my 17 years of work on the on recreating the major arcana of the tarot and writing a, a book that was reviewed as possibly the best work on it in a hundred years. It was, it was, I have, I felt like a Ferrari builder, like the guy building a Ferrari, right? It's like going, Oh my God, I got to tell you about the inductions. It's like most people would go, I just want the keys, dude. I just want to drive the Ferrari. Don't explain to me how it's built. And and so I had to find those that were interested in how are these things put together? Because I realized most people don't have the time, the inclination. It's nothing personal. It's not their job. You know, in other words, it's not like, oh, they're supposed to be. It's like, no. And that's why I love theater. If you're, if you're good at what you do, you kind of get the sense of a gardener. It's like, I'll give them the blossoms of, of the garden when they've bloomed, but I won't bring them through the weeding process, talk to them about how you n- nurture the seeds, unless they're fellow gardeners. And I think that's what I was able to do, create gardening let's, clubs. <laughs> let's get back to that Ferrari that you built. Right. The the, the deck, Tarot right. Revision book. This was, as you said, a 17-year effort. Can you take us through? I have the book, the artwork you guys just have to go online and look at, at Lee's artwork. You just do. I was I was told that he was, oh, you got to talk to Lee. He's a great artist. All this stuff does this tarot deck. And you just kind of have this idea in mind. And I was like, oh, wow, this guy is actually really great. So <laughs> this, the book started out where you were asked to do some drawing for your friend, Edwin, my middle name. My middle name, incidentally, um, <laughs> Steinbrecher. Is that right? That's where yes, it started? Edwin Steinbrecher. Yeah. Take it away. Yeah, I was asked. I and and what I liked was that that his work was called the Inner Guide Meditation, and I wanted a way to get inside. I, you know, people wanted to meditate and just zone out, and I wanted to say, wait a minute, 
<laughs> I don't want to waste my time. I want to figure out how I'm wired. And I think that's an actor's question. Why are we wired the way we are? So the inner guide meditation was the first time I saw this capacity to use archetype. And for Ed, he used the tarot, the 22 uh, arcanum of the major arcana of the tarot, but in a type of union way, more of a psychological way, and that then he used uh, natal astrology and and um, uh, union active imagination as a way of understanding that we are wired, we are coded in a way like a like a, a blueprint that shows all of these different alignments, almost like an electrical grid that says, ah, these these energies within you are in a, in a sense agreement. These are dissonant, but if you begin to understand how to uh, communicate within yourself, you begin to not have these elements war within you, but more to say, no, I need this from you. Like I need you to take a walk on the beach or I need you to exercise. And so that was the nature of the work. The the work with the archetypes was to go inward and with an inner guide so that one wasn't in a sense swept away by these inner energies, but, but had this, this ability to uh, really journey deeper and deeper. And I learned so much. And Ed asked me, um, if he could use some of my drawings for his book, The Inner Guide Meditation, which was going into its sixth revised edition. And I, this is where there's an old saying that, that one is tricked onto their path because I said, and I, and I can almost hear myself almost drippingly condescending, thinking, oh, well, you know, I didn't really say it that way, but that's my inner self thing. It's sort of like, oh, well, you know, I've always found the images rather wanting and um, seems, you know, there's so much, de- you know, and I, and, and, but I ended the sentence basically, you know, why don't I try drawing one? I mean, how hard could that be? Mm-hmm. And I think the slap in the face to <laughs> how hard could that be would be like Cleopatra going, did you really think you'd get to see me just like that? Right. <laughs> Work here, boy. And so I was, I was, and, and I, I put it this way. I, I really, I began to realize as I began the process, one after another drawing was awful. It was obvious. It it, it meant nothing, you know, and I kept, and, and I, I ended up reading this, this, um, work called the stanzas of the book of Jian. And, um, and as I read it, it started to open up something in me and it was no longer about my idea of what I thought I didn't know about the tarot or what I did. Mm-hmm. It was much more like an actor connecting to the character itself. You know, if something awakens within you where you're not making it up, you're allowing it to make itself up through you, like a dancer allows the music to move through her body or the music. So did you sit did you sit with each card one at a time for a period of time, or were you working on multiples uh, at the no, same time over that? No, they were all one at a time. They, they, okay. And what was interesting for me, because when Ed asked me, he had a journal called the White, the White Sun, or that really means the inner sun. Um, uh, and, and, uh, and he said, can you, uh, do death because his, it was death and death is actually the 13th key. Usually we begin with the magician in mine. It's called the magus, the, the initiator. Um, and, uh, and what, what death is though, and this is very important because symbolically, one of the things that, that, that the, 
symbolism, the tarot, and really all of these traditions teach us is to start realizing that we're not simply in a random world, but everything has behind it, like keys of a piano, different qualities or conditions. And when we understand the notes, that's why the tarot is called keys, we start not to be for or against uh, one thing, you know, in the sense, oh, I don't like the devil. It's like, no, that's the F sharp. It's how you incorporate these things rather than over identifying with them. And that's that's what uh, this this tarot, one after the other, one key. So I entered at death, meaning, and it's interesting because it's that sense of, uh, with St. Paul, it said that, that a seed does not sprout lest it die. And when we enter into a new relationship with our inner self, with the questions we're going to ask, and for me, where this is going to take me, I didn't realize it, but I can say looking back, I was dying from one way of seeing things and being reborn because of the questions that, that the next 17 years would insist upon, meaning that, that because I wasn't basing my work on the work of another, I wasn't basing my writing on the writings of others, but to honor them, I became familiar with all of them. And many of right. the books and authors I read fifty or a hundred times. I did. I did. I did my due diligence. So you were preparing much as an actor would prepare. And yeah. would you say was it fair to say that you lived these roles card by card for a period of time? You know, I would say that they lived in me, and and as a matter of fact, moved through me because I I realized that a lot of times these energies start moving through us and then we take it personally and we start to like a mirror, it starts to feed back on us. But my acting side had taught me how to get out of the way of these energies and also how to not over-personalize. You know, in other words, it's like, I know I'm not a killer if I play a killer, but if you're working with me, you'll really know I'm going to kill you. Do you know? In other words, it's not, yeah. it, it's allowing these energies not to uh, reside in us, to pass through us. And this is when we become an instrument. You know, we become not a believer, but an instrument. We allow these energies to move through us. So, so as they would move through me, because the questions were different, it was very interesting. And as they grew, it grew in conversation. It was almost like these actors, each showing up, it begins as a monologue with death. Then it moves into what is known as temperance. Then the next one is the devil. I mean, I started to realize that where I, I had to go in terms of the question was a bit like an archaeologist getting to the door in the tomb going, uh, I, I think there's a curse on that door. I'm going, oh, oh, who believes in curses? <laughs> and going deeper and deeper. So you do 17 years on this and, and you finish it up. I, I imagine it must have been a challenge to recognize that you were finished, or maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was just like, that's the last card, you know, last line, I'm done. But what happens then when a new tarot deck hits? Is that something where there are sort of some gatekeepers that look at it and go, ah, you know, this, this, this passes, this is a good deck. How do you know that your version has had impact, has been accepted, is, is you know, part of the new currency? You know, in an odd way, and I mean this in all charm and dignity, I don't really care. Uh, you know, you know, sort of like a painting of mine, as I tell other painters and artists, I say, don't ask people what they think about your work. Ask what 
your work makes them think. Have a conversation, not a critique. Do you know, and that's why when you're working with timeless traditions, whether it's considered timely or not, it ultimately will out. That's what I would say the library that surrounds me reassures me, mm-hmm. is that it's not that those, because I, I start to realize that my work is about the questions of intimacy, about why are we wired the way we are? That's my way of work. It was reviewed as possibly the most significant work uh, in a hundred years on the tradition. And, and I, I say in a way like Chippendale would about his furniture, it is because there wasn't like an actor. I was not going to say my performance is elsewhere. I have offstage uh, authorities that verify that this is my real name. In other words, I wasn't going to create the theater of being something that I wasn't, but actually saying, no, I demand that what I finally do, because my first question was, I don't want to create something uh, symbolical or or intentionally meaningful. I want to create something beautiful. And I want Mm -hmm. to ask the question, what do I need to know about you? And I want to trust my hand to guide me. And this is why when we understand these things, we start to see that we are a a very ancient instrument that is triggered by the questions we're willing to ask. And that's one of the great reasons why I I suggest so heartily for people now with what we're going through to read my book, Tarot Revisioned, to begin to understand the symbolical nature of where and who we are, because we have... And this is not political. I am uh, I, I, discussion groups. I do not bring politics into anything. Mm-hmm. But the Trumps, which are what the tarot is called, the Trump Tower is Mars. This is the 16th key. Mars is orange. Mars sets everything on fire because it's a fire that burns away old assumptions. But in the ashes, we are asked to re- not, uh, in a sense, resume from those ashes, but to rebuild from a different place. And I feel that that's what 9-11, triggering the studio here, and then the tarot, also my world archetype, fascinatingly, not intentionally, is dated 9-11, 1986. So there's something in all of this that I really believe is trying to tell us what we've been hearing forever, but where you live and what you love is what you must honor. So you mentioned a moment ago, you said something about your hand being guided. And I was, you, you do, well, I would imagine the part of the reason why it took 17 years to do this uh, revision is that you were also creating this incredible home, which we need to talk about, Olandar, all of these paintings, all of this, it looks like tile work and just the chair you're sitting on, right? Yeah, every yeah. detail, every surface is, is, is artistically rendered and explored and, and, uh, enabled in the home from what I, from what I've seen. So in doing that, in doing, um, some of your, your pieces, uh, Phoenix arise, these ashes, you're talking about the ashes. You have a piece called Phoenix arise, a painting you have some guided, uh, what do you call it when you, where your hand is sort of guided variance? Well, you know, this is where, and the closest I can liken this to is, is for musicians out there or, or people who like to dance, where the music moves into you and suddenly you're not feeling like dancing, but you hear, you know, little Richard and your body wants to dance. Do you know, there's something about this that's saying, listen, um, these are the qualities that rise up into you and you are the instrument. In other words, you're allowing it to move through you. It's like Yo-Yo Ma playing the cello. You know, to, you should listen to him talk about this relationship. It's a love affair. You know, and, and part of that is why 
what we call art is unfortunate because it's become, you know, in a sense, usurped by the art world. But art is creation. We are creation. Essentially, it is the tool that doesn't have a way of being contained. It is this and not this. It comes through us. And that's why uh, even my work uh, that began uh, the Hieroglyph of the Human Soul, this painted library studio of mine on 9-11-2001, erupted with a language through my hand called the Watcher language. And what's okay. extraordinary about this language is that I would liken it, though, if, if I have jazz musician friends out there listening, think of a riff. Think of where you just follow and you start realizing, man, this is great. You know, you, you're, you're participating in something. And your, your commentary is like, wow, let's see where this goes. And then you look over, you know, and you start trusting the guy next to you, the woman. You know, like this is something that I, I feel very strongly about, that, that why this became so important was that, it was the watcher language that, that the watchers are not those that engage us directly, but mm-hmm. create the container that allows us to understand that it is our own energies that we are being asked to attend to. And I think that's why this language came through me when I fell on my knees. You know, that, that really I fell in my studio in my home with my daughters that I love, with my wife that I love, my animals. My, you know, it's like this thinking of what what is precious. And I, I did, I felt like I said, I said, if I were filming this, it'd be Michelangelo in one world, you know, shouting at the Pope and God, these ideas matter. And then the, like with the collapse of the twin towers, these erections of money and God fall. And we're on our knees thinking my neighbor is angry. My other neighbor is angry. How do I not tell a story of anger because I'll burn down my own home at this point. You know, so you took up, the project of your home in a new way at that point. When did you feel that you had transmuted, as you put it earlier, that grief and that confusion of 9-11? Was there a painting that you completed? Was there a part of your home that was done when you finally felt, you know what, this has now passed through me? Or is it still part of your everyday momentum and energy? Again, it's a very interesting question because I would say that that because it's ongoing, because it's called the hieroglyph of the human soul, and I'm convinced the relationship here is the love affair with creation, that it is never ending. You know, in other words, that it will go on until I put my brush down and and you know you know or step into the other side of the mirror, um, and and I, I and that's what allows me, I think, to to see that. What really was the initiatory force, and this is why uh, in the in the tarot again is about the judgment archetype. The the Wolseley Malibu Park fire came to our door, and literally, I was punched back into my home by a fire tornado. But something shifted in me, and I I I just came back out, and and through this process, my wife and I stayed. There was nothing, no one here. Everything was on mm-hmm. fire. But it became this remarkable time of doing everything I could, realizing I couldn't control the fire, but I could work with nature. And I felt my garden saying, everything in the garden is alive. Everything living wants to live. You're the part of the garden that is in movement. Trust us. We have your back. Mm -hmm. And that's what's very interesting is that nothing burned here, but it burned to our front door. And had we not stayed, it would have burned down our entire block because Garland and I being here, we were able to, uh, it's a long story, don't need to get into it. But basically what I learned in this process of 
the initiation of fire. And in judgment, it's called the baptism of fire. And that, that because this fire went on endlessly for day after day, and then, then it would reappear. Winds came back up, and it was a monster. It was something because I grew up out here; I'd never seen the likes. And it was, it was, it was furious. It was angry. It was the qualities of apocalypse. It was that that neighbor, and this is what it told me: it said, said, said that everyone is forgetting what they love and knowing what they hate. One neighbor is blaming another, and therefore community is dissolving, and this is what the fire will consume. And it's interesting because it said, I will seek out this brittleness, this dryness in the human heart, and I will burn it out. And it is, it's, it's that it was the story that this was the time we are being brought to our knees. You know, okay. my neighbors, I lost, uh, we have 240 neighbors. I lost 180 of them. Sad. Your home, you share with your family, with your wife, Olandar, did I say that right? Olandar, yeah, yeah. Olandar, yeah. you have meetings there. You have what does that look like? What are your what are your are they workshops? Do, are they look different every time? Talk to me about what those look like. Well, my weekly discussion groups have always been gathering in a circle upstairs where the where the painting is, where the hieroglyph is. Mm-hmm. I think that's very important because I say to people because they always think, well, what's the point of thinking about these things? I say when you come here, you realize you're participating in a conversation that said at least here let these things matter at least to us. And that's when we become custodians. And that's why my, my discussion groups are always in a circle upstairs. We usually put down carpets over the, the uh, or throw rugs. Uh, and, and then we put down uh, folding chairs and we sit in a circle, a bit like Arthur in the round table without the swords, but with the grail. And then uh, our public events, which we started back in about 2009 when Carla retired, uh, which I love is she brings in documentaries and documentarians and performers and and storytellers and I'll give presentations on different you know different subjects. I put a lot of those on YouTube, which are kind of fun. If you want some interesting uh, things to think about, um, you know, just Google my name with uh, you know YouTube and uh, look at the, the the titles because uh, so I, I say that we created uh, a gathering place of the curious. You know that that, and I love mm-hmm. it because it really has. We've even had weddings here. We've had Kundalini yoga here, sound baths here, right? Uh, Indian elders and all, and I and I feel like that's this is ancestral ground. It's Shumash land, and I feel and also because I grew up two miles from here, I've always felt this incredible sense of the need to be uh, of honor to the gift I was given of being able to live here and to realize that it didn't come because it was given without have it having been taken. And there is something in this that, that I think the whole metaphor, the fire metaphor, the being right at the ocean and the fire hit us on the day, two years to the day of the election, and you realize that everyone's so angry in the sense that there's no further to run. We have to turn and look at the library, we have to realize the roots of the tree are born of an anguish that has been expressed in all of these different worlds and lives. But like the library, we finally say, let me not see who I hate or why I need to blame. This is my home. Let me not you know, set it on fire with my anger over things, but look at my daughters and say, I want the world to be a story that you change because you believe in that it's not the adversity that defines us. It's what Amen we do inside of it, you know? I do. And I love that you have a library. I'm jealous that you have a library. Someday, one day, one day, someday. <laughs> um, 
yeah. with with pinball machine. That's that's a passion <laughs> of mine that nobody else cares about, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> it will happen. We have speaking of libraries, we have uh, one of my personal heroes, uh, a man that we have in common, the Philosophical Research Society, Manly P. Hall. Yeah, that's something that I find so interesting that we ran into each other because the research society is something that for 30 years now I have wanted to come and visit and they do have some public events and openings and access. Um, what kind of overlaps do you have philosophically with, with Manly, with the research society? Has that ever been part of your life at all? Well, I remember just saying to my dad when I, when I first ha- laid hands on and fell in love with secret teachings of all ages, I said, dad, mm-hmm. If they had taught this in school, I wouldn't have yeah. dated. I wouldn't. I would have been there. I yeah. would have been a straight A student. This stuff is fascinating. Why don't they teach any of this in school? I said. I think they teach us to try and make us not interested in anything, because right. that. What my and and I, you know, and I'm old enough to, you know, I actually saw Manley uh, give a talk uh, at the PRS uh, Philosophical Research Society, probably in um, about 1976. and um, I, But that's what was interesting with Manly Hall, the PRS, is that one of his examples uh, really did make me aware that, that there were other people like myself that loved these things and wanted to mm-hmm. talk about mm-hmm. these ideas. And that's why I was studying on my own. And in 1981, when we moved out here, um, I, I actually, I began at another, at a woman's house uh, who became the mayor, first mayor of Malibu. She held a theosophy study group. And I had heard about Blavatsky and theosophical thought. And I really wanted to understand, again, like as an actor, wanting to know my craft, I said, I really want to know the nature of esoteric philosophy. I want to know the, na- you know, since I want to understand like you did with religion, where these different ideas come from. And so I started there and then they, it, the, we uh, brought the group here and that was sort of the seed moment of, cause that then lasted for 25 years of, of a study group, even read the secret doctrine over nine years together. But I realized that in that study, I needed to balance it with a Western study. So I started another group, which looked at Western tradition and our, you know, and, and I feel like that's why this, my home really is now a library. Cause it's almost like the librarian's dream is not to tell you what book to hate or what God to believe in, but to say, wait a minute, the story is so interesting. It contains mm-hmm. all of these things. You know, so and- what I'm hearing from you here, or sorry, what I'm wanting to be hearing from you here <laughs> is that Los Angeles <laughs> Uh, isn't just uh, a city of, of vapid movie stars and models, but there's also a community of people here that are taking some really deep dives into traditional and hidden wisdoms, yeah. right? There's a community of that here. Is there anybody famous that you can out, you know, that's you know, <laughs> like a, 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 you know, a really famous movie star that's a, that's a, a Crowley devotee or something, you know? Well, you know, it's so interesting because really the ones who are are priests. I'm kidding, but. Yeah. You know, because because there's not it's not the day of the hidden handshake. I mean, this is why I get into, you know, people that especially when you've spent a lifetime with this stuff and you've really done your homework and they start talking about things they've read online and you think, oh, my God, right. let's not talk about Illuminati and stuff. You know, it's it's it's, it's a complete in a way, it's 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 sort of like if, if you enjoy pulp science fiction, it's great. And you realize it's pulp science fiction. But if you think it's 
getting into the depth of things. It's trying to say I can climb Everest, but I'm, I'm not going to exercise at all. Like, I just know I can do it. <laughs> there's, a, there's a great TV show that got canceled. It only ran two seasons um, called Lodge 49. If you're uh-huh. listening to this, uh, anybody, check out Lodge 49. It, it's it's a take. It's a little bit of a send up on the uh, our, our fascination with the Freemasons and their their mythology, you know, their yeah. mythology of dating back to uh, Hiram and all these others, which is, you know, they, they had to root it in something older. They're, they're not an old ancient organization, but they like to make those connections. Lodge 49 takes that and then go. It's, it's a great show. It's one of those shows. It's one of those shows where there's no tension. There's no stress. Nobody's getting killed. Nothing. <laughs> there's no ticking time bomb, but all of the cast, you can just tell they all love working together. Yeah. And so there's this, this magnification that happens. It's just, it doesn't even matter what they're talking about. The show is beautiful because it's perfectly cast. They're all fantastic. They all get along. Hoping it gets picked up again. I don't know, Lodge 49. That's my plug. That's my plug. Lodge 49. <laughs> hey, do you think you can get me into the Magic Castle? You know, there's, uh, no, I, I don't know. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so interesting because, you know, it's it's like anything. I really believe that, that, one of the the keys uh, when we think about asking questions is that realization, like in the Renaissance, that that you'd always have the individual and they're surrounded by a wheel, essentially with spokes. And each of the spokes had a different everything from military strategy to physiognomy and, and uh, astronomy and astrology, because it was saying that the human mind to understand itself fully needs to ask questions in all these different ways. And one of the things that I think is so important about my work is because I never, you know, you know I've never, I'm an actor by, you know, a sense, and I think this is, is very important, that you're not interested in finding a character to believe in or a play that's the true play. You're really always asking the question of, well, if we're motivated the way we are, why are we motivated this way? And if it's not me personally, then what are the qualities that run through me that I take personally that are asking me to be self-determining? I would say, if somebody wanted to ask me what I am, I would say an Emersonian. I'm much more uh, stressing an Emerson sense of things than an occult or metaphysics because I don't think that more terminology or alien systems are helpful. This is why my writing on the tarot, I think, is very helpful because it tries to get us into these qualities have more to do with feelings we experience, states of mind we know. But once we can recognize that they're not just random, but they actually have, again, a different spoke, a different key, it helps us organize ourselves in a way that is very helpful because there's the outer world that's always disorganized. So it says, what should I believe in? And what I love about these tools when they're not a belief system, I even in my book, I say tarot is not a belief, it's a tool. Its use is that it lets us ask questions in a more creative way. And if you think about what does art do? It asks us always as an invitation, can you trust your imagination? You know, and, 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 and this I really feel is when people want to help, I say one of the great ways we help is helping the storyteller within an individual. And this is why, again, I tell people when they come to my home, I say, remember what you're going to see in my work is my home. So maybe the things I'm asking about, if they lead to an argument with your neighbor, don't have them with that world. Have them with the inner world where you have to ask the questions, not to prove something to others, 
but to say, I have to live with myself. And, and, I, and I feel like that's where we start to feel like cultivators, you know, gardeners. We start to say, if I don't do this for you, but I do this for me, and not in a selfish way. It's like saying, I can't ask you to love my wife. That's mine. I must. You know, so let me not assume it's your responsibility when everything in my world I know is asking me to show up, not waiting for you to show up. Cultivating. You've cultivated two daughters. How old are they now? <laughs> I'm going to get their ages wrong. Probably too old. That's all right. 37 yeah. and 33 through 40. And my, I'm not okay, so, grandpapa too. <laughs> congratulations. So they grew up in the home. They grew up in Olandar, correct? Yeah. What kind of, what would they say how that, that impacted them? Do you feel like they have a leg up over where you were at their age? Or has their journey just been wildly divergent despite the fact that they've been grounded in that space every day for so long? I would say that that what this environment has given is a strong sense of family, a sense of centeredness, a sense of of like when I talk about my studio, my home, I, it was I was told inwardly that the last flood was water. This flood is information. And so the story of the library here is the story of the ark. And that the arc, if we think of the, um, the library, uh, is the arc of the imagination. But when we look at our children, we realize that what we're cultivating in them is the imagination of how do we live in a way that isn't simply responsible to myself alone, but to the family, you know, to one another. And I feel like that's when we think about, well, how do we change the world? We start to think like loving parents again. And begin to be loving parents to ourselves, even if we didn't have loving parents. You know, to say, wait a minute, I, I don't want to look at at the world and why I'm angry at it. I want to take that anger and look at my daughters and begin to see that their environment, and that's what I love about it. We're very happy. We're all together. And I and I rather not that we don't have dissonance. Everyone does. This is the there's a perfect model. It's like, no, there's an archetypal model. We are in a boat on water in life, and it's nothing personal, but oftentimes waters affect all of us, and we are rocking, and we're trying to find equilibrium, and it's nothing personal. It's when we personalize it that we project on one another, and I really think that the pandemic, the fires, everything is bringing us back to what do you really value? What matters to your heart? If the fire hit your door and you had one thing to take, what would it be? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hopefully it's the person you love. Right. You know? I had that I had that happen in Santa Rosa a couple of years ago. You know, the fire was hitting the door and, and it was out of the blue, you know, get the phone call from my 17-year-old son, Justice. Hey, there's a fire. And we didn't know, right? So it just jumped up and you realize what you grab. You know, it's really interesting, the things that you grab really quickly, Yeah. right? And yeah. for me, it was really nothing. It was really nothing. I some clothes, yeah. some old photographs, um, and a laptop. Yeah. Nothing else. Oh, and a 17th century samurai sword that my grandfather was gifted from a Japanese family back in the late 30s. That was it. Yeah. That was it. Nothing else mattered. And I have a library that means a lot to me in yeah, normal yeah. times, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, that is such a moment. What is valuable to you? You know, the people and the memories of the people. You know, when you talk to people who have lost their homes, I have a few friends, oftentimes what they really fixate on is we lost all our family photos. Yeah. So I don't have any connection, right? Now you think, how could you do that? Because they're all digitized, right? Um, 
Well, a big enough sun flare, and those are gone, right? <laughs> no, I, I um, the, the impermanency. It's it's that I, I created a in my garden called the Philosopher's Garden on nine uh, cubes, which was going to be the foundation of a studio that was never built. Uh, it ended up being a really beautiful geometrical garden, uh, Zen garden uh, that that I created. It's for my and I honored my friend Lita Albuquerque, who's a wonderful artist, and she did. Uh, she she lost her studio. She lost all of her art. She had art journals that were going to the Smithsonian that went back fifty mm. years, and and so there was. The, and you see the heartbreak of what can never be brought back, and and over and over again. Whether it's the people dying around us, the you know everyone is in a place considerable trauma and if we think about well why it says it says cherish what you love no one don't wait the anger you are feeling is not personal it's like being in a wildfire it's all around you don't bring it to your door and when you find yourself engaging in that fire give yourself permission to take a breath and step back and say what really matters to me because what mattered to you when you were when you got thrown back in from a the fire tornado the fire nato right did 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 you two think okay we need we might need to pack up a few things was there anything that you thought this has to come um you know i had very quickly because this thing again was a monster it was far away and then it was here and the bombers who were supposed to show up never came the fire department mm. never showed up it mm. was the neighbors fled so it was it was a fiasco on all levels and what i had done though uh having grown up out here was i had uh, loaded the two cats i could catch uh, <laughs> but but i had some ancient books again uh, I'd taken down these big paintings in my studio, which my friend, as he helped me rehang them, he said, how'd you do that without help? And I thought, and I looked and I thought, I think that was one of those minor miracles. I have no idea how I right. accomplished it, but I got them down. And and it hits so fast because the, the key is to get to Zuma, you know, get down to the beach, the great fire break, no further to go, the ocean. Right. But it hit so fast that that it was just in the driveway. I had I'd loaded the 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 car. I didn't, you know, and and basically was you, you become very scrappy very quickly because your only defense at that point for me was water, keeping things as wet as I could, and and knowing I would lose my water, which we did, knowing I'd lose my electricity, which we did. So mm -hmm. having grown up here, I, I thought, what do I have? So I got trash cans filled with water, put the rags. I, I just tried to because i realized i had two fire extinguishers that were small didn't even know if they worked you know so it was like being here in a very barren naked way but because it was so raw that's when this other sense of nature working with you it, it was almost that that feeling of of and one of the other things i have to tell people because it's very important for what you do is that I learned on the night of the fire directly about 2 a.m. And, and it was like Nero, everything was burning around. Mm -hmm. And 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 I feel and I hear inside of my myself, do you feel everyone's prayers for you and Carla and Olandar? Mm -hmm. And I did. And it wasn't Wuma mm -hmm. Wuma. It was like oh. father's death. It was palpable. And I saw a dome, and this is how the fire burnt lifting over the house, protecting it. 
And I felt everyone's shared love of Olandar, this, this desire that this, and almost fury, we will not allow this to leave the earth. And that there wow. was a huge decision being made on that night. And that because love is not seeable, but in times of crisis and trauma, it is known. And this is what I want to say to people. I've never seen uh, love in an optical state, but on that night, I felt it as an objective state. And that it, like, I, and it wasn't a guarantee. It wasn't like, oh, now I can throw off. It was like angels at your back. Like the dragons are still sieging, mm-hmm. but you're not alone. But here's a little extra help. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. The dome... Friends of mine will probably go, God, we didn't know Todd was this much of a hippie, but I'll just share this because uh, at night, my, my sons, my, my young sons live now, you know, some hundreds of miles north of me up in Sonoma County. And so I would tell them that I do this and, and they get a kick out of it. Uh, as I'm going to bed, I send like a little, a little white ball of energy goes trucking up the highway to their house, right? And it doesn't take any time. And I, I kind of see the whole landscape zooming by at incredible mm-hmm. speeds. And then it'll locate them sleeping in their beds and it will create a dome that will encompass their home. It'll encompass, you know, their mom and her boyfriend and their younger brother. And that's like a nightly ritual. In my mind, yes, it's a flight of fancy. But at the same time, it certainly feels like you're connecting because you're thinking so deeply about your children and their safety and trying to be paternal you know it is it's love it's yeah. love and what love it is. is the most powerful force this is what because when we want to turn it into science science has nothing to do with love the heart knows these things it's not about putting a man on mars it's about how do i attend to my children who i love at a distance mm-hmm. and hasn't every parent since the cave in a way had to say i needed for our family it's white light meaning that that i see you in a way i want to see you in a white light whenever i'm nervous and i say to people that that raise their eyes i say you know first of all it couldn't hurt and if it's not superstitious meaning oh oh this is you know but mm-hmm. actually an act of love saying like i could not read this poem to my beloved right i also could read the poem what do i think might be a more pleasant outcome exactly it can't hurt right can't hurt so what happens in your mind where where are you and carla olandar do you want to see olandar be something that is standing there as is in a hundred years is that something that your daughters feel like they need to take on do you feel like that could be a burden to them what's the future of olandar decades from now i i I really feel that uh, because i love art i've been speaking modestly, know a great deal about art and about art history and artists and traditions because I love it. It's like acting. If you love something, you know of it. And I feel that because all of what I've done was unexpected, meaning I never thought, I never had the conceit, oh, I'm going to create a great tarot. I never had the conceit I'm going to create after that, the watcher language, the hieroglyph, the human soul, or my other works, the Codex Tor, which are uh, books that, you know, uh, Flying Lotus used for Cosmogramma. I mean, there's so many things that, that I never intended. But I realized because I, I, I think it's, it's like, it's almost the question of the creative soul saying, where can I tell a story whose meaning isn't ultimately about more or somewhere else or something else or about working for a collector or having, uh, you know, other, but actually where the sign and symbol was here an individual lived that 
the love of the creative spirit was so powerful that like his family, he said, I must protect this with what I know and feel I can honor these things with, not because I assume my neighbor will ever be interested. And I do feel that this will become, because it is the creative spirit, it's written in the oldest language, in intimate space. It's this painted drawing. It's archetypal. And I almost feel like the myths are saying, we need to come home with you. If you think you have to go to Mount Olympus or you're not it, or you have to go toward Mecca, these are not not to be honored, but put them on the shelf and honor them with the other things that say being human is beyond reasoning out or fighting over. It's the question of how do I live with myself? How do I live with the story of what it means to be human? And why I feel that this will be a place that in one way or another is um, protected. And I feel it is the outcome. It's odd. I feel like an archaeologist that in an odd way is wiping away about 18 million years of mildew, meaning that, that it's nothing I'm inventing. It's almost like all of the conditions are right for the symbolic field, which is what we are, to say, I want to come home with you. And Lee, I want you to tell people a story that lets them sit on your couch with you. you now, know? if people want to come home with you and sit on your couch post-COVID, yeah. what do they do? They go to your website and, and yes, check and, it out? That's the process. Uh, really, uh, LeeMcCloskey.com. But there's also Olandar, uh, O-L-A-N-D-A-R, uh, Foundation for Emerging Renaissance, which the acronym is OFFER. That's on Facebook. I'm also on Facebook, but almost, uh, I think I don't even have, I don't know if I have any openings. But we put in, if you email Carla McCloskey at AOL.com with a C, that's my wife, and she sets up and has always put together invitation lists. Uh, and we put out a, a newsletter, Olandar uh, event list, uh, and, and we live up near Zuma in Malibu. And what we do is we, uh, she puts a very nice uh, sense of upcoming and what's going on. And there's a, a nominal, nominal uh, charge for different things because we want to pay artists and musicians the, the, this. And, um, uh, but really, it's, I feel like, like my years of opening my home to public discussion groups, it's not that one is flooded. It's actually the people, they go, oh, it's like maybe you're the one that will hear this. Do you know, in other words, don't think it's a bunch of people that hear, but actually I really think that, that it is something now. Think of a story that's reached a point saying, if you're not curious about me, I'm not going to be curious about you. Really like a mature relationship. Mm -hmm. You have to show up. So we just try to create a place where we can show up together. I always do a walkabout in my studio for about a half hour before we have a gathering either upstairs or downstairs or in the garden. Um, and um, But but we, we can put you on the email list. And really now with media, it's pretty easy to, <laughs> to get us. So, right. uh, But I would also look at my wiki page and just different things that might help, uh, you know. But so if you're hearing this Super Nice Club member and you're interested, just do it. Carla, if you can hear my voice in the background, we add me to that list. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, if, if you're in the in the club and you're interested in this, definitely do it. I, I'm going to do it. You know, I'll I'll go with you. Just reach out to me. Let me know. We'll schedule it together. If you're in the LA area, um, it's just a thing that will happen for me. And if you're tempted, go for it. Right. If you were led to this conversation, then maybe you should go for it. Lee, we 
each week ask our wonderful guests to challenge the members of the Super Nice Club with some sort of uh, ritual or task or something that they can make their world a little bit nicer place. It's called the Super Nice Club Challenge. I'm going to ask you to issue something if you've got it. I would like when we find ourselves reacting and angry and stomping our feet with what's going on to realize that momentarily at least that like a captain on a ship, those are the waters they're hitting us, but they're not real. What is real is where we are and to take a breath and to say, may I be responsible for cultivating the better version of who and what I am. May I allow myself to honor that which is worthy in me and not wait for another, but to do the things that I can do for myself because I like the way it makes me feel. And I'm not doing it because I ought to or it will matter if I don't. I do this because I choose to. So, and, I, and I feel like that frees us wow. from a lot yeah. of self oh, you should be doing this, you should be doing that, which makes us angrier. And I do, I feel like part of the studio, I really feel, is it wants to wrap like a great embrace, wants to hug us, almost like we're so hard on ourselves. So take a moment and allow yourself to say, I allow myself to say yes. I allow myself to breathe. I allow myself to say, why not? Do you see we're open? That's beautiful. Story. Yeah. This is how we open the story. Is it? Okay. Yeah. You know, with ourselves. And we begin with where we live. And since we're all being in one way or another forced to isolate, what better time to cultivate? A big part of, of, of a 10% nicer world is, is starting with being nicer to yourselves. You know, we are hard on ourselves. And in this time uh, of COVID, a lot of us are out of work. A lot of us are working less. A lot of us are not feeling like the optimal providers that we can be, that we think we should be, our choices are reduced. You know, we can't just choose to work. We can't just choose to not be sick. We can make choices that give us better opportunities to be healthy and to be employed. But boy, it's a disempowering time right now. And boy, that can lead people to some real anxiety and sadness and loneliness. So following your advice, I think, can, can help with that. Absolutely. And then we wrap with... Question for me. You have a question for me? Anything at all? If, if there is anything in this world that makes you say yes at the top of your lungs, what is it? Mm. Well, we already talked about pinball. Um, <laughs> that's a great question. I can't believe that I haven't been asked that before. It's kind of like, what's the most marvelous thing in the world to you? You know... It's very rare that I'm going to walk by a used bookstore without getting excited and, and jumping in. It just <laughs> doesn't happen very often unless I'm with someone who I know that will just bore to tears. You and I will have to go on a walk together. <laughs> yeah. That just says, yes, of course, my children, you know, the chance to see them, the chance to be with them. Um, but there's a bigger answer than that. What is there a bigger answer than that? It's, it's, it's mystery, man. It's always been that it's always been something, a chance to learn something new, to, to be fascinated by something, you know, then I'm like, Oh my God, I don't know anything about that. That's awesome. This is why I'm doing the podcast to talk to people who know so many things that I don't, 
right? That's fascinating to me, this connectivity around uh, exposing my ignorance. I love it. Yes, yes. I say yes to that all the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all day long. Um, say yes, even before the question is asked. That's Henry Miller. I love that. Isn't that wonderful? Say, what, say yes for, even before yeah, the question is asked. The question is asked. Yeah, gotta, we got to say yes a lot more to things, don't we? Yeah, I, and I feel like that's the thing. When you look at a beautiful sunset, you say, yes. And you think, and you think to the sense of, why don't I see angels? And the sunset says, we're not that vulgar as to be that literal. Find the divine in the yes. Do you know, I, I really feel yeah, that. that's great. Yeah. Oh, God, I could have come up with a better answer. I should have just said the sunset, Lee. Darn it. <laughs> I feel so shallow. I'm judging myself now. No, I'm saying no. no a lot. Hey, thank you for saying yes to being on this on yeah. the podcast. Really appreciate it. We, yeah. we barely touched any of the stuff Absolutely. Uh, that you're into. But I hope we touched enough where people thought, gosh, that's real interesting. I would like to learn more. I, you know, which you can easily, uh, Lee McCloskey website will be in the show notes. You can just Google it. By the way, guys, something that, that has, has challenged Lee his whole life. I don't even have to guess. It's L E I G H. Yes. Yes. It's L E I G H McCloskey. Look him up. And Carla, his partner, also very much a part of everything that he does, but she was not in Buck Rogers. So doesn't get the full credit. Right. Jurassic Park. She was the assistant. But she was in Jurassic Park. Right. Uh, you know. Yeah. So really, thank you. Thank you so much for your time and your and sharing your wisdom and the peek, the little peek into your home there yeah. and your painted chair. Beautiful. All of it's beautiful. I look beautiful. forward to you out here and continuing the conversation where we can actually talk in person and walk and wonder. So uh, thank you for all you do. Really, really just bravo. Thank you. So there you have it. A super nice conversation with Lee McCluskey. And I never mentioned who I am. My name is Todd Brilliant, which is really not that important. Other than that, um, I produced all of the Battlestar Galactica television shows and films. That's kind of like my claim to fame. Uh, Starbuck. Starbuck was uh, also something named after a character that I originally penned a long time ago. <laughs> I know. I know. It's crazy. And now I'm doing this podcast. Who knew? Hope you enjoy what we had to say, what we talked about. We just brushed over the surface of things. Um, Lee and his wife, Carla, have opened their home to anyone who shows an interest in having these wonderful wisdoms shared with them, the wisdoms that are expressed and embodied in Lee's work, but not just in his work, but also in the works of humanity throughout all times and ages. That's a little duplicative, I guess, right? Times and ages. Eh. And study those together, right? With other like-minded people. So if you're interested in that, and maybe like-minded entities, I don't know. I haven't been to Lee's house. I'm not sure what's inhabiting it. I'm guessing there may be more than just people there. Um, That's it. Until next week, I need to have a sign-off. It's stay nice, right? That's what I've been saying. But I want something cooler. So if anybody has a really cool sign-off for me, uh, let me know. And if I find one that I really like, I'll send you something in the mail. I'll send you something cool. But until then, stay nice. That's not so bad. How about stay nice, everyone? That's, That's more funny. Until then, stay nice. Yeah.